0: Hey, this is Raghu Marcus for Mind Rolling. Uh, and I have with me somebody w- uh, we just met. Right, Kenny? And uh, uh, Kenny uh, Ospel. Well, how do I pronounce that? Pronounce that for me. Uh, Ospel. Yeah, Ospel. Like Ossib- okay. yeah. Kenny is the founder, co founder, I believe, of Bioneers. And uh, Kenny, here's my little summary, which uh, you you might want to correct me on. We'll see. Transformation of the planet through social and scientific vision, knowledge, and practices that honor the genius of nature and human ingenuity. Does that do it?
1: That's fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's uh but it's a huge ask that you are involved with why don't you just tell us you know before you tell us how the bioneers started tell us about you how did you even you know coming up growing up what were the uh, the influences and experiences you had that even led you to want to be involved with uh, this kind of social action
1: yeah well um what led me up to bioneers good question um I um well for one, I grew up in New York City, my father taught at Columbia, and as a teacher, um, we got these glorious three month summers. Um, and my brother, we used to go up to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket before it was expensive or cool. Um, and my brother and I just got turned loose for three months every summer with our bicycles and fishing poles and crabbing nets and you know kind of lived outdoors and um I didn't realize for many many years afterwards what a profound influence that had on me but for me that was where I you know I found communion and just the ability to range freely and you know um be in nature in that way and that that was a profound influence in my life for which I'm enormously grateful mm. and then um I grew up you know right around Columbia in the 60s and um, you know that was a, a an iconic moment of um, radical social change, and I became very involved early when I was about 15 with the civil rights movement, and then with the anti-war movement. And I'd grown up, you know, believing in truth, justice, in the American way, and uh, wasn't really seeing it out there. So, um, so I became very, very involved politically. And um, you know, long story short, I then had a. Um, a health crisis, um, oh. of um, a, a mysterious event where I had symptoms of a stroke when I was 19 or 20 that later Whoa. turned out to be um, a massive chemical exposure, Whoa. and it sort of took me out of the game. Um, I ended up – I did um, – I finished college and fell in love while I was there, and my first wife and I ended up um, leaving New York City. I knew – for my health and well-being, that I needed to get back to nature, and um, within about a year and a half, landed um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you know began a very deep journey into alternative medicine and into healing, um, and learned during the course of all that that essentially I'd had a you know an environmental toxic exposure, which deepened my commitment to <laughs> um, you know a, a healthy planet. Um, you know we. Don't you know? All of us are subject to you know we're we're um, essentially subjects in a vast uncontrolled medical experiment out there, in terms of the toxicity in the world. And um, I grew up always. I've been a writer since I was a kid, and grew up loving film. And um, ultimately decided I I began to um, stabilize my health, and then very gradually recover and I decided I wanted to go and make films, and um, in the course of that, I ended up um, making a film called Hoxie, How Healing Becomes a Crime, about what was once a very, very famous or variously infamous uh, unconventional treatment for cancer. My father had died of cancer very unexpectedly, and I sort of fell through the rabbit hole and began to learn about all that, you know, other methods of treating cancer, and – the core of the story is centered around a botanical re- remedy, plant medicine. And through that, I began to learn a great deal about botanical medicine and met um, one of the co authors of a, what was then a very famous book, The Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Christopher Bird. And, um, you know, if I thought what I was doing was controversial, uh, you know, an herbal cancer treatment, um, Chris was talking about plants having consciousness and sentience and. You know, so we spent many long hours into the night, you know, talking about things like that. And a few months later, he um, called me up and said that a friend of his was doing a very interesting project on an Indian Pueblo just outside Santa Fe, and they wanted, you know, would I be willing to go up there and film? Um, and it was a paying job, so that was a good start. Mm-hmm. And so I went up to San Juan Pueblo, and what I discovered there was um, I met Gabriel Howarth, who was a master organic farmer and seed collector and um, he had studied with the biodynamic master Alan Chadwick at UC Santa Cruz and Chadwick told his students that if you really want to learn about farming uh, venture forth and study with indigenous peoples they've been at it the longest and they have a very different relationship to the land and to mm. farming so Gabriel kind of lit out you know headed south and um, spent a lot of time in Mexico and then wandered down through Latin America and what happened was that as people began to trust him and and take him, you know, in to teach him about traditional farming practices, they shared with him what for them was the most precious of gifts, which is the gift of seeds. Because each time that we, you know, the seed, through the seeds speak the voices of the ancestors and each time you plant a seed, you become an ancestor for the generations to come. So it's a very sacred transmission. And Gabriel had connected, c- collected this extraordinary arc of native seeds. Um, I'd lived on a – and stuck them in the ground in San Juan Pueblo and it was a biodiversity garden. And I'd lived on a small farm for about six years and um, you know, been a, a modest gardener and farmer. But the world is frankly better off without me farming. But I had just <laughs> never seen anything like this <laughs> and it really blew my mind. And as I was standing there behind the camera filming one afternoon, this Native American farmer um, came in front of the camera and his hands, he was holding these beautiful um, red corn seeds that were just glinting in the the New Mexico sun. And as he spoke, he began to weep. And Gabriel, as he did everywhere, put out the word through the Pueblo, if anybody had any old seeds lying around, you know, this is how these things reappear. And sure enough, um, this fellow James Chancellor had found these red corn seeds actually in the wall of his adobe home, in the mud wall. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know what they were. He took them around to all of the elders at the Pueblo, and finally one of the elders recognized them, and it turned out to be the sacred red corn of San Juan Pueblo, which had not been um, you know, seen in 40 years or grown. So that marked a renaissance at the Pueblo, a recovery of this traditional seed stock and with it their traditional farming. And, you know, I was really – it was an epic moment and I was profoundly moved um, by what I saw and realized that, you know, and at the same time began had begun to learn quite a bit about biodiversity loss and um, having done the Hoxie movie, <laughs> it was the usual suspects, the same as the chemical and pharmaceutical companies who opposed – An Herbal treatment for cancer. We're also the ones patenting seeds and you know bringing in hybrids and essentially throttling diversity and so Gabriel came back to me a few months later and asked if I would help him raise money to start a kind of a health-oriented farm uh, in New Mexico and I said, you know That doesn't really do it for me, but what about a seed company, you know? Maybe we could form a market partnership with Backyard Gardeners and try to bring back this diversity into the food web. And that was the genesis um, of the company Seeds of Change, which he and I founded in in 1989. And throughout the 70s and 80s, i I've just been very interested, you know, having – being close to nature and having experienced my own, you know, environmental poisoning that um, I I was very interested. I didn't want to sit around, you know, shivering in the dark, worrying about – the crisis that the world was clearly entering into ecologically. So I began to poke around to see who all out there might have some solutions. And one by one by one, I began to come across these really remarkable individuals and the pattern that I began to see was that they had looked to nature for solutions with the disarmingly simple question, how would nature do it? And whether it's how does nature pro- provide food, or how does nature cleanse itself, or how does nature heal, um, you know, this became a profound learning for me, and I began to call these people pioneers because they, to me they were biological pioneers who mm-hmm. had looked to the heart of nature for solutions. So, shortly after I, Gabriel and I started Seeds of Change, um, I ended up um, – I was actually um, visiting with a friend who was one of our investors, and I was ranting and raving about all these amazing people I was meeting and pioneers, and that all these solutions were actually out there, but nobody ever heard of it and didn't, you know, there was just no energy behind it. And he said, Well, why don't you have a conference? And I'd literally never been to a conference in my entire life, and it sounded intensely boring to me. So I just kind of ignored the question and moved on and kept talking about all these people. And finally, he stopped me mid sentence and said, Kenny, I'm giving you $10,000. Have a conference. Mm. And that was how Bayadir started.
0: Really? Well, that's quite a story, Kenny. Wow. Amazing. I'm struck. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, how the winds of karma take us uh, in, in this incarnation is pretty amazing. When you look at each person's life and their particular offering that they make, it's... Uh, and you look back into it, you see all the factors that form, which you just did, lovely in ten minutes, and and all the factors which formed the underpinning for what it was that was going to be your offering. So pretty great. Um, and and you talk about um, so all these people that you started to find, um, and you talk about them as innovators who are mimicking nature, nature's operating instructions to to serve human ends that's an interesting concept can you give a give me and uh, give us uh, um an idea like in practice of of one of these innovators and how what they were addressing and how they were uh, executing it to to an end that uh, seemed to make some kind of dent
1: yeah absolutely well um one of the first people who really inspired me is a fellow named john todd who's still around. He teaches at the University of New Hampshire. And um, I had become very interested in, in wetlands, um, const- what are called constructed wetlands, which are used for wastewater treatment as an alternative to your standard sort of chemical you know, approach in, in uh, sewage treatment plants. And when you look at nature and how nature purifies water – Um, it, when you find water flowing through a wetlands, there are different, you know, um, sort of stages in the process, but basically the cattails and the other wetlands plants somehow purify the water. And what it turns out is it's not really done by the plants, but the roots of the plants are a wonderful host for bacteria and the bacteria, you know, one of the, you know, sort of, um, principles of nature is in nature, there is no waste, everything is someone's lunch of either food or energy, right? And so it becomes a game of kind of a matchmaking game of finding the organisms that like what we would call a waste, but really waste doesn't exist actually. And so John had studied, um, pond, he was a pond man, a limnologist, and then he became very interested in wetlands and he was able to create solar greenhouses. He was also one of the early solar pioneers. He mimicked a wetlands ecology and in Providence, Rhode Island, which is, by the way, the um, costume jewelry capital of the world—or it was at the time—horrible <laughs> toxicity co- going into their water from the waste from all that, really nightmarish. He was able to set up a little smaller solar pilot greenhouse and take this really trashed out wastewater, put it through this constructed, you know, his mimicked wetlands in the greenhouse, and by the time the water came out the other end, it was actually drinkable. You wow. know um, Wow, and so John went on to apply this to industrial wastes. He worked in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which also has a river that has horrifying industrial pollution that seemed impossible to deal with, and there are endless applications for this um, it 's now being used by a number of large companies m M&M m Mars got very interested, and in it was one example. Um, so that was the, you know, the kind of, and John was really one of the the grandfathers of this field of what's now called biomimicry, and, um, you know, I had kind of fallen through the rabbit hole into this whole world, as I say, around 1990, and we were using words like imitating nature, or biomorphic, and then uh, about eight years later, Janine Benyus came out with a book called Biomimicry, which really gave the name, you know, gave the field a name. And Janine is one of the leading lights to this day in this field as a science writer and biologist um, in really looking to nature for these solutions and creating an enormous database um, that is open access around the world to begin to work with nature to heal nature and in the process really to heal ourselves, you know.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, that's an excellent... uh... Example of something that obviously has been taken to another uh, practical level, where people are actually utilizing. I mean, that's amazing, Kenny. That's really amazing.
1: Well, let me give you one other example. That's one of my favorites. Um, the um, in 1997 at Bayonurs, we we somehow learned about this fellow named Paul Stamets, who's a mycologist, a mushroom man. And, um, he had all these wild claims about what mushrooms could do, so anyway, we invited him to speak and um he lives uh, lived on a small farm in in Washington state in the Pacific Northwest rainforest and since he was very young was just obsessed with mushrooms and you know it's well known many other countries in the world are mycophilic, you know we're sort of mycophobic in the u s but you know Japan and large parts of Asia. You know, it's what Chinese medicine, of course, it's well known, the profound healing properties of mushrooms and fungi for, you know, human health. Yeah. Um, and Paul wondered, he said, well, if that's true for our bodies, then could these also be medicines for the earth? What are they doing in the land? Right. And so he got his chance to test his theory when whether there was a large spill of diesel fuel not far from where his farm is located. And the state of Washington, um, you know, Department of the Environment uh, opened up a, a you know a process whereby companies got their, their hat in the ring as to whether they could decontaminate this diesel soil and so Paul threw his hat in the ring and was chosen and all the other companies were doing what's called generally heat beat, and treat very invasive uh, often toxic methods some of them were using enzymes um, others you know were using these kind of brute force techniques and Paul took the spore from oyster mushrooms that you would buy at the grocery store, right? And um, he inoculated this 20 by 20 cell of contaminated dirt, soil, um, you know, with his mushroom spores and then they all covered these, these um, you know, areas up with tarps and about six weeks later, they came back and one by one, the companies are ripping off the tarps and you're kind of overwhelmed by the stench of hydrocarbons, I mean, if it was working at all, it was working very slowly. And then they got to Paul's cell of dirt, ripped it off, and it was blanketed with oyster mushrooms, some of them a foot in diameter. So they tested the soil, and then they tested the flesh of the mushrooms, and essentially there was virtually no trace of diesel left whatsoever. So again, one organism's poison is another one's food. It turned out fungi, certain types of fungi, really like to eat oil. <laughs> and so this has profound implications when you think about contaminated farmland from mm-hmm. synthetic oil-based fertilizers, you know, take the state of Iowa mm-hmm. <laughs> or any number of industrial uses of oil. Um, so Paul began to apply the mycotechnology to these areas. But one day, and he's basically an old hippie, Um, You know, he got a call from the Pentagon and, you know, at the time, this was the early 2000 or late 90s, actually um, forget Saddam Hussein, the US has by far the biggest stockpiles. Of um, chemical and biological weapons in the world, and most of them are thirty, forty years old, and they start to degrade, and there's no good way to get rid of them. You know, it's nobody wants incineration in their backyard, which is what they were mainly doing. So the Pentagon asked, "You got any mushrooms that could decontaminate sarin, um, which is uh, right. like a nerve gas yeah. that's right up there with plutonium, absolutely deadly?" And so he um, did a classic blinded scientific test where he sent them samples 1 through 28. He didn't tell them what they were, and he kind of forgot about it. They gave him a security clearance and all that. And, um, and about six months later, he gets a call back from the Pentagon, and sure enough, two of them had worked. They had essentially totally metabolized the sarin. Um, one of them is a mushroom called turkey tail which Paul actually has going through um, tests at the National Institutes of Health now as a very significant breast cancer uh, treatment that appears to cure breast cancer. But the top performer, interestingly, which did it in record time, was psilocybin, (laughs) magic mushrooms so draw your own conclusions but um, you know this is at Bioneers we like to say that the solutions in nature surpass our concept of what's even possible so this is you know nature has a profound capacity for healing and it is a mystery you know we know a little bit about disease and pathology but we almost know nothing about healing right
0: yeah so at Bioneers basically uh, I imagine that you're also doing a lot of um supporting of the various possibilities that people come up with that can make a change in one way or another uh, obviously in, in these environmental situations so are, you, are you're acting almost like a, a think tank is that would that be correct where you're, you're really promulgating people's ability to to follow through with what it is they think might be Work in any of these uh, kinds of situations
1: well, yes and no. Um, we do a couple of things in particular, but um, you know we started out as a conference, and uh, my background you know has been in media and journalism um, hmm. you know long before then and and um, my wife and partner Nina Simons who 's the co founder of Bioneers, is also a you know a born communicator. So um, the conference just grew very, very quickly in the first three years. We outgrew all the facilities in Santa Fe quite unexpectedly, and moved it out to the Bay Area to San Francisco. And it continued to grow. And then we, from early on, I, you know, I, as a media person, I would um, write and edit and put get stuff into the press and, you know, put these stories out through the media. So, um, communicating and and bringing uh, visibility. Um, to these incredibly important people and projects is sort of our, you know, core um, role in many ways, and I we see. now do all all kinds of media. But one thing that we didn't really understand at all for many years at the beginning was the power of convening, and there's real magic that happens when you bring people together and get the right people in the room. All kinds of connections happen, and you know, one of the You know, people often in the nonprofit world or in the activism world talk about silos. You know, the people working on environment are not talking to the people working on race or even people working on rivers are not talking to people working on oceans. And there's just a a massive amount of disconnection when, in fact, at the end of the day, it's all one issue. (laughs) It's all connected, we like to say. And so what happened very quickly was all kinds of amazing connections began to happen through essentially building an informal network that over the years has turned into a network of networks. And Bioneers still remains the only truly holistic forum in that way that brings together all the pieces and all the people in that way, in the recognition that everything is connected um, and that we have to, you know, at the end of the day, you have to take a systems approach and a solve the whole problem approach. And then people um, get many, many, many benefits from both being at Bioneers and speaking there. You know, people get a lot of press. Oftentimes, people get funding. Oftentimes, they make a critically important connection with a colleague or with somebody in a different field that leads right. to a highly innovative new initiative of some sort. Um, so, you know, that that's really a lot right. of what we do. And we're able to sort of shine the high beams on what we think are the growing edges of where we need to be going today,
0: right? Um, just in looking through some of what pioneers has done, you know, the, of course, the, the there's a radio show. We should talk about that at some point to let people know about it. Anyhow, and uh, and obviously blogs and videos. And one of the things that I noticed, and, and this is relates to what I'm involved with, uh, is you had Suzanne Sterling on uh, and. Uh, It was called Off the Mat Into the World. I guess it was a blog. It might have been an interview. Um, So around the concept, and this was what was brought up in that uh, article, uh, around the concept of social activism. So you have what she's talking about, get off the mat and get into the world and, and start to activate what it is that you have been developing within yourself to be able to make some contribution to... All of the tremendous and varied amount of issues there are in this world at this time, Um, and then there's also the concept of a social activism that perhaps is devoid. It would be instead of it would be um, come back from the world and look inside yourself for a minute. Take a minute doing that. So this this is something, of course, uh, and I know you know Ramdas at least who he is and all uh i he had been involved with a couple of social activ- Seva, uh activism projects which i think you know uh and also um he's done all sorts of work uh, around the world uh with social activism and and always and also most recently or not that recently with social social venture network which is also uh, a place where many people get together and all sorts of uh, you know wonderful synergy happens and it's uh, the credo that they've actually kept in their in their uh, when people get together and they mention is uh, Ramdas's thing before we can think that we're going to change anything we're going to have to change our own insides our own hearts so how does that uh, so like I say that was brought up by uh, in this uh, blog by Suzanne could Just uh, give me some feedback as to what your feelings are of, of that uh, it goes two ways kind of a thing. You know. People who just uh, absolutely are working on themselves and they don't have much interest in spending any of their time uh, outwardly uh, doing social activism. And then there are social activists that are, that are absolutely uh, only doing that and uh, are kind of caught up in a different way
1: yeah no Ragu. I think you raised an incredibly important and profound point, and I actually did used to know Ram Das from social venture network going back twenty something years. We were both there a lot during many of the same times and um this is something that for me you know it's it's um it, this this goes to the heart of everything because um you know we don't uh, these these things can only happen in a dialectic. I don't think that you can, quote, work on yourself without also being engaged in the world. And I think being engaged in the world without having that inner awareness and self-reflection, um, you're you're really not contributing at the level that you can and that really is called for. You know, we're, this is about more than just change. This is about transformation. We're talking about literal paradigm shifts and a fundamental transformation of our own consciousness. That's what got us in all this To begin with, I mean, we've imagined things, you know, the world is as you dream it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the world that we're living in. And so we have to dream our way into a different dream, but that also means being engaged. And it's also how you learn, you know, sitting there in self-reflection is great up to a point, yet you then need the reflection of engagement at the same time. And at the same time, you know, as the Buddha certainly practiced, you it's important to relieve suffering in the world. And that's certainly so much of what Ram Dust's life has been about, you know, um, mm-hmm. which I admire tremendously. So I think from our perspective, you know, in, in, you could say it's an inside job. <laughs> You've got to bring the inner consciousness shift to bear on your engagement in the world. And your engagement in the world will teach you in turn how to do better with that and how to – and it will teach you a lot about yourself as well. So, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I'm working on an outside project right now um, and related to consciousness. And hmm. we don't have a clue what consciousness is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an extremely interesting um, study that's being done now between um, a scientist, a, a neuroscientist, who's to a couple of them who are very respected and the buddhist community and the dalai lama who had extensive conversations about the nature of consciousness and what is sentience and is all of life sentient and basically what we're finding is you know einstein had it almost right with e equals mc squared in the sense that energy and matter are the two are two of the you know the fundamental irreducible fabric of the cosmos but there appears to be a third uh, part of that fabric which is actually consciousness and that consciousness supersedes human consciousness. It's other than human, you know, as well. And it's the great mystery. We, we have no idea. We may never know, <laughs> you know. Um, but, the, but I think that's the, the real frontier right now. And um, if we're really talking about serious social change, there really has to be a deep, deep shift in our consciousness mm. for that to ultimately work.
0: Absolutely. Well said, Kenny. That's exactly what uh, <laughs> we have been working along the same lines there, that's for sure. I want to go to something else that uh, that I read about and you've already mentioned that super interests me because I, I know you said you lived on a small farm for six years. I also, back quite some time ago, uh, also lived on a small farm and we did organic gardens back in the day this is in the in the mid 70s uh and uh, i have a real affinity towards uh that process uh, so much so that i even though uh i'm Kind of busy with a bunch of different things shall we say uh, as everybody is, but I still managed to get in a little garden a little organic garden a mountain in the woods of North Carolina in the mountains and um, I have started to really notice the tremendous differences in the different seeds that I'm getting and I'm and I'm also noticing uh, how certain of them actually that uh, naturally on their own, germinate and come up, and what that I just what that plant might be like. So I've have suddenly I've become aware just through my own engagement in a very tiny way, and then I read all of the stuff that uh, uh, on the bioneer site and uh, the the and you've talked about the seeds. And by the way, that uh, the book uh, or no the company Seeds of Change is that still around.
1: Yes, um, they're still around. Um, we left in 1994 when it was um, just before it was taken over by M&M Mars. So oh. it's a very dif- different outfit from what we were involved with at the outset.
0: But can you, uh, this is for my head, know. <laughs> there must be somebody else interested too. Can you recommend the right seed company that people can order from? We would put it up on the page in a very practical way. <sighs>
1: Um, you know, I can get a list for you at another time. I'd be Perfect. happy to do that, but I, I don't have that in front of me. Yeah. Okay.
0: Good. No, let's do it. I want to. Everybody, uh, we'll get this up on, on the Be Here Now Network site along and to the Mind Rolling page, and uh, and give you that advice. but why don't you talk a little bit about? You know, I guess what I was reading about was bi- biomimicry, which you've talked about to basically redesign the food system. And and what are we talking about when we say living seeds, open pollinated seeds?
1: Yeah. um, Well, what you're referring to, the first thing, is that um, the Biomimicry Institute, which was founded by Janine Benyus, whom I mentioned earlier, who's one of the godmothers, really, of biomimicry, um their institute has teamed up with the Ray Anderson Foundation out of Atlanta. Ray, Ray was a corporate leader, actually, the interface carpet company um, that he built into a billion-dollar company um, and did everything right. He read Paul Hawkins' book in, of the ecology of commerce in the early 90s and tried to bring biomimicry and you know cradle-to-cradle production to the center of his company and did that and was very successful. But anyway, they've teamed up with the Biomimicry Institute for an annual $100,000 challenge prize. And that will be given for the first time live this year at Bioneers in a couple of weeks. Oh. And the challenge was globally, um, what would a biomimetic food system look like? How would nature do it? What does that mean as we would look at our food system so they're going to be giving that award and there are eight teams of people that are finalists um, including I think one group that's high school students which is really cool mm. and um, they'll be presenting at the conference and I, I nobody actually knows what all these um, you know, different projects are. Yet, we'll be learning at the conference um, what's going on. But that is very much going to be, you know, the future of the food system. And you know, the thing about if you really take it seriously, when we say that it's all connected, and you have to take a solve the whole problem approach, then there is no separation between ecological well-being and social justice. Right? You you cannot have peace with the earth while you have injustice in the world, and in fact, many of the harms that are caused to the land are from people who are absolutely desperate. You know, it's not just people who don't know how to do things in a good way. Um, So I think that a fair food system is the other thing here. It's one thing to just have a, a green society, but if it's green Walmart, you know, is that really a different model? Um, so there's tremendous, um, social justice movement. That's part of, that's sent front and center with the food movement now, which is about access, equal access for people, whether or not you have a lot of money. I mean, you shouldn't have to pay more actually for organics, um, you know, all the, diff- I'm sure you're very familiar with this whole arena, but, um, you know, a biomedic food system in that regard has to be not just an ecological system, but one that is also socially just mm-hmm. and, um, you know what? Because you know, I was deeply involved in the whole food and farming world when I started pioneers. Um, that's always been a cornerstone of our work. And fast forward 27 years, and the advancements that made not just organic farming, but what's called restorative or regenerative farming, ecological farming. Are so far beyond what most people have any idea of. When you're doing things right, you know, if you have a farm for, say, 10 years, your farm, your soil, you've built natural capital during that time. I'm sure you know that as a gardener. Things actually get better and better. They're not being degraded, they're being right. restored and regenerated. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, uh, there's, a, there's, I mean, um, Paul Hawken is doing a project right now called Project Drawdown. That is saying that, you know, here we get 400 parts per million of um, CO2, which is catastrophic. I mean, it, and it's not just enough just to stabilize that. We actually have to start to draw carbon out of the atmosphere back down to prior levels. And so it turns out that organic farming, holistic rangeland management um, are two of the absolute top things that we can do it, to bring carbon back home where it belongs in the soil. And of course, you know, reforestation obviously, but organic farming really ought to be implemented on a mass national scale as a climate defense strategy right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So these things are much, much more important than people realize. Um, And and to answer the second part of your question about seeds, um, you know, diversity is nature's fail-safe mechanism against extinction. If you go to your banker and he tells you to have a diversified portfolio, if you're lucky enough to have any cash on hand, um, he's going to tell you to diversify your portfolio, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just grandma's common sense, you know? Excuse me. So that's nature's strategy. And also there's something within nature called response diversity that it isn't just having a whole deck of options in any given situation it could be one very specific thing that's needed and one brilliant amazing organism out there actually figured that out and occupies that niche right so and, you know peruvian farmers have 3000 different varieties of potatoes that they've they've actually cultivated and bred over you know many centuries each one is fitted for a particular niche or a microclimate, or is resistant to this disease or that blight or whatever it might be. So you really want to have you know a full deck of diversity to play with. And really, what happened with the seed industry, which began sometime around the 1930s, was as seed breeding became more sophisticated, you could create you know you hybridize seeds, which has gone on forever. It is not a bad thing at all in and of itself. <laughs> But what the hybrids really um, were designed for was to be patented, so that they could be um, proprietary and you know have um, commercial um, monopoly value in that regard. And what that did is it drove down the degree of diversity. Right. I mean, if you look at GMOs now, Monsanto owns ninety percent of corn and soy acreage because they have patents, right? and the, and it 's a system that 's designed that you can 't actually use those seeds without their chemicals you know it's it 's a package deal, so that has throttled diversity in the food system um, and it 's a ve- and, and the hybrid seeds also generally don 't reproduce, so you can 't save seeds so this is you know purely a corporate you know um, kind of hungry ghost greed strategy that is anti life and anti biology. Um, And seeds are the first link in a safe food web. It's actually the thin green line between us and starvation. So you really, really want to have a much more widespread base of these um, open access, open source, open pollinated seeds. Mm -hmm. And and that was a lot of what our effort was toward in, in those times. And, of course, you've eaten heirloom tomatoes. I mean, these things have tremendous vitality, flavor. I mean, they're just much better nutrition as a rule. You know, all this other stuff has been bred for things like tensile strength, which means a tomato that won't, you know, get yeah. bruised when you're shipping it in a giant container. And, mm. you know, it's it's an industrial trait, not a health, nutrition, or human trait.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. Tomatoes, particularly. The variety of, some of them are just absolutely, uh, you you can tell that they they've been really crapped on by whoever was nurturing these plants and creating new uh plants and seeds. I mean it's 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 amazing. Um yep. Okay, something lighthearted right now that I I found uh to that I I thought. I mean, and maybe you weren't involved with this. Were you involved with the family uh who had chimpanzees as family?
1: Yeah, well, our executive director of Bioneers, Josh Fouts, who's one of my best friends, I'm happy to say. Um, I met Josh about seven or eight years ago um, and through other work that he was doing and we had him come speak at Bioneers and then subsequently he's joined us as our executive director. But, you know, you mentioned our radio series and um, we produce a radio series every year drawn from content from the annual conference. and I. Produce that and I, I write it. And one of our shows in our current series, the series is called Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature. And one of the current um, shows is We're All Chimps, you know. Mm. Um, and it's with Josh's parents who spoke at Bioneers last year. And it's an incredible story. I mean,
0: he oh, well, you grew you're...
1: up with um, five chimps as aunties and uncles, if you can imagine
0: that. No.
1: Um, yeah. <clears throat> His, um, his father wanted to actually work with child psychology and through a whole serendipity of events instead ended up working with chimpanzees. But chimps, you know, animals, science has treated animals as automatons and these just machines, meat machines that have no consciousness or, or humanity, you might say. And um, so all the experiments that had been you know, tried to teach chimps to speak or to speak language didn't work because chimps have a very different voice box from ours. It's not how they communicate. So some very, very thoughtful person said, what about trying American sign language? So Josh's father, Roger Fouts, and his wife, Debbie, then began what are quite famous, these experiments called the Washoe experiments, W-A-S-H-O-E, the name of, of, of a female chimpanzee, Washoe. And they started to teach Washoe American Sign Language and found that she could communicate brilliantly and um, they that essentially this was a person just like you might have a child or a family member. And so animal intelligence is absolutely profound and we've just been incredibly blind and sort of, you know, anthropocentric in our views. And this is coming out more and more and more. There's just science out the wazoo now from plants to dolphins to slime molds to Whatever you might you know study, um, bees can handle abstract concepts. You know, slime molds are actually being used by biomimicry researchers now because they're geniuses at solving tubing networks, no. which is incredible for traffic patterns. For lay, if you want to lay out a really great traffic pattern that's the most sh- shortest, easiest route, use a slime mold to solve the maze. I slime mean, you mold, know, slime molds, right? A giant one-celled ball of mucus has this profound intelligence, you know?
0: Unbelievable. um, Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there's a a whole movement now that we're actually highlighting very much this year at Bioneers again, which is around rights for nature, because um, nature actually... Has rights to survive and flourish and thrive, and if not for nature, I mean, we are nature as human beings. We wouldn't be here, you know. Nature, we didn't invent nature. Nature invented us, right? And so, this incredible, magical web of biodiversity that we're shredding is, in fact, what life runs on and what we depend on. And we're basically, you know, smashing the very mirror of nature that could teach us who we are and how to live here. Um, So, you know, things like the chimpanzee research have been absolutely phenomenal in understanding how there is this profound, not just intelligence, but consciousness, sentience.
0: But tell me, your friend went, he's living with these chimpanzees, you know, I want to get a better picture here. Your friend is living with his parents with these chimpanzees. They're in their own section of the house, I would imagine, right? They're not just popping around.
1: Well, they had living facilities for the chimps, and at times they would bring them into their homes as well. Um, but yeah, there were there was also separate facilities for the animals.
0: Yeah. So but, your friend, but did they you... would
1: go in the car together to Dairy Queen, you know, and really? things like that. Oh yeah, they would celebrate the chimps' birthdays. You got to hear this radio show; no, it'll tell them really? the story for you. But um, but and, yeah, they, they yeah exactly. In fact, the funniest story that Josh told me. Was that you know he knew Washoe very well and would be at her you know her digs often and in the lab with his father and you know having all kinds of experiences together, and as he was becoming a teenager he was in the lab one day and suddenly Washoe molested him, and he had just entered puberty. <laughs> oh
0: my god! And she smelled it and came on to him. Oh, now that would be a bit intimidating, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, my. I that was oh, my. In fact,
1: this year at the conference, um, one of the my the speakers I'm especially excited about is a man named James Nestor, who likes to write about weird science. But he fell into um, learning about free diving of people who can dive literally 300 feet with no equipment, you know, and hold their breath for five minutes. Yeah. And so he, through that, he discovered that when free divers go to those depths without any tanks or you know foreign equipment of any sort, that they can hear things, that they could hear whales speaking, basically, in a way that you can't hear otherwise. Mm. And long story short, this has resulted in a major project where he's working with Google and Apple to actually decode whale languages and be able to speak back to them and make first contact. Really? Wow. So... Come to pioneers. Cool. This is what yeah, you'll find. Yeah, <laughs> this is what
0: you're going to find out. Oh, well, this is so great! I'll, I'll have to say, uh, as we get to the close, uh, w- the main thing that I thought after reading through all the different things. The biggest impression that came to me. and it's not any kind of uh, bright idea or anything, and and it's very. You guys are very totally connected into it and uh, and really developing a consciousness in uh, in this which we've had since the 60s if you and it's around the indigenous um tribes and what they have to offer us i mean it, the, they they have to they offer us such a uh, a perfect balance and this is going back to what we were talking about social activism and inner Inner activism, shall we say, they offer such a perfect balance of the inner and the outer in everything that they do. Uh, certainly, from you know, I mean, we have a, uh, a, a there's some huge issues around w- w- that they are dealing with, from from gaming to, of course, what's happening still to what lands they have left uh, and what the, what what uh, corporate greed is doing. But, uh, but the ones that have maintained, the native tribes that have maintained that integrity uh, of balance between inner work and, uh, and, uh, and outer respect for the environment and doing something about it uh, is, is, to me, the greatest well that some, uh, an outfit like yours, pioneers, can draw upon to, to really flesh that out. And activate it
1: well, I really appreciate your saying that, and you're bringing this up Raghu. and um you know, as I mentioned, it was native farmers and all this biodiversity work that really got me started, and Native people have been um, central to pioneers since the very very beginning. Um, and in fact you know the world's indigenous people really are the original pioneers <laughs> right. so we we stand on their shoulders but we have a over the years it's it's really evolved and within the conference we have an indigenous forum that's actually a sort of mini conference that's all native led and native directed about indigenous related issues of all all types and last year we had 80 87 different indian nations at pioneers And I couldn't agree more. The leadership of First Peoples today um, is absolutely essential, and it's been incredibly gratifying and heartening to see Native people in a real renaissance and rising to that leadership and people seeing it and respecting it and honoring it. And it's a really epic moment in Indian country right now. We haven't seen anything like this before. Mm. And uh, all the nations are coming together with, you know, and it's, it's a very, very big deal what's going on right now. And, you know, give thanks. And by the way, it's not just a museum quality issue here at all. Um, the the knife's edge of clean versus dirty energy is often on native lands, whether it's oil or uranium or clean energy, you know, solar and wind. And also 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity is on indigenous lands, which is not an accident. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these are very, very practical issues, too, at that yeah. level.
0: Yeah, And bringing that more to the forefront on every level uh, is something we should all participate in. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope you get to come to Bioneers one of these years.
0: Yes. Now, I mean, now I have, uh, Kenny, now I know what it is that you're, I mean, it's one thing to read about it on the site, which has got a lot of great material, by the way. Bioneers.org, is it? Yes. So, uh, please go there and and partake and get an understanding like I have done. But, of course, speaking with you directly, Kenny, is uh, um, a whole other matter to get at the core of what it is that uh you're helping to present uh different aspects that can really make a difference in this world so i really appreciate what you're doing and kenny just give us uh the dates and the um location of this pioneer convention coming up in a couple of weeks right
1: yeah a couple of weeks um it's october 21st through the 23rd which is a friday through a sunday and there's pre and post conference intensives for in-depth stuff Um, And it's in San Rafael, which is just north of San Francisco, about 20 minutes north of San Francisco. And it's a very beautiful setting. It's a large event. There's usually about 3,000 plus people. Um, And it's, you know, people ask me, what's Bioneers? Really, it doesn't fit into a soundbite. But what I like to say is it's a natural antidepressant. (laughs) And um, we know of at least 10 or 12 marriages that have resulted from people who met there. And
0: (laughs) And a few babies there, too. Yeah. Oh, that's great.
1: That's great. it's incredibly uplifting. And, you know, we're in the early stages of a genuine revolution here, Raghu. I mean, there's no question things are going to change.
0: Mm, they will.
1: It's yeah. only a question of how, and that's where we all come in. And I, yeah. I, once you've been to Bioneers, you'll see how much hope there is.
0: Oh, that's beautiful, Kenny. Um, and uh, by the way, just telling you live, whatever. I'm sure there'll be some material after that will be up on the site, and we'd love to share that on both the Be Here Now Network and also Ramdas.org, sister uh, platform uh, under Love, Serve, Remember Foundation, which is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to share this. This is absolutely – it's Love, Serve, Remember foundation. Mm, Beautiful. uh, Well, we
1: love you too, so thank
0: you. (laughs) Thanks, Kenny. Uh, This is uh, Raghu from Mind Rolling here with Kenny, and uh, we will be back uh, on the Be Here Now Network soon come.